Hello and welcome to another episode of Cloud Security Podcast. This is a continuation of our Cloud Security Trends Month in October 2021. And today's topic is what is CNAP or Cloud Native Application Protection Platform? I know it's another acronym, but hey, this is why we're here to demystify and make it easy for you. So in this episode of Cloud Security Podcast, we have Omul Chandani, who is the CTO and CISO of Acurix. In the episode, we spoke about what is cloud native, what is cloud native security look like for from a CISO perspective. We also spoke about CNAP, what it is, and whether you actually need a CNAP today. I hope you enjoy this episode. I just want to take a quick moment to also say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or rating recently. We recently crossed 100k downloads, so thank you so much for helping us achieve this. I could not have been more grateful that two years ago when we started this, we were going to hit the 100k download mark. Thank you so much for this. And I do appreciate everyone who shares cloud security podcasts with others who want to know about cloud security or want to learn about cloud security. So thank you so much. And if you are someone who hasn't subscribed, please consider subscribing to us. We are a great community of folks who love having cloud security conversations and sharing what's happening in cloud security with everyone else. Thank you again. And I will see everyone on another episode of cloud security podcast next week. But for now, enjoy this episode. Time is the enemy of security. And that's where Exonius comes in. Exonius helps organizations immediately know what assets they have and shows which devices, cloud instances, and users adhere to or deviate from security policies. Learn more and try it for free at exonius.com. How do you get your cloud security news without scouring the internet for hours? I normally just head to cloud security news to get my weekly update on what's most popular in the cloud security world. If you are interested in this, check out cloud security news on all popular podcast platforms or on www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv. Welcome to the show. Thank you for coming in. Appreciate for having me. Always uh, fun. No problem, man. Thank you. So maybe a good place for us to start would be for people who don't know who Ohm is. Uh, a bit about yourself and how did you get into cybersecurity? Yeah, well, uh, a quick intro about me is I'm a serial cybersecurity entrepreneur. And I recently was co-founder, CISO uh, of a company called We Recently Got Acquired by Tenable. And uh, I've been in cybersecurity over 15 years now. And and well, I got into cybersecurity because someone identified some kind of talent in me, which I didn't know I possessed. And I was advised, hey, why don't you not try? You have an inquisitiveness of knowing things and going into deeper second level details. Why don't you not try doing some work around cybersecurity, gain some experience or gain some certifications? And that's how kind of I got more into cybersecurity. However, my first job was as a software engineer at a cybersecurity startup. So I wasn't like too much far away from cybersecurity as a subject, but I took interest into the subject only after working for one, one and a half years as a software engineer at the beginning of my career. Also software engineer to cybersecurity kind of like. Yeah. So application software development and from there got into cybersecurity. I started very opposite than what I see people doing in cybersecurity world, people who are interested in kind of offensive and defensive side of things. They don't usually start from audit, but I started, my cybersecurity journey got started with the CISA certification as my first kind of attempt to understand how audit works. And I got into pen testing, OSCP, and then practiced all sorts of cybersecurity disciplines at Australia, actually, at Melbourne. Yep. 
working for a consulting company kind of that's awesome man i was gonna say it's always good to have a melbourneite for lack of a better word like sounds like cryptonite but like a <laughs> melbourneite making it happen as well and congratulations on accurate being uh, acquired by tenable as well i think uh, a regular of ours you know she's a get previous guest as well she's already the coolest guest with his own beat there you go you're getting recognition already so i'll definitely leave the music beat in the, in the show notes as well we'll get into that as well but so for people who don't know what is cnap maybe a good place to start could be what what do you define as cloud or cloud sorry cloud security or cloud native security what what does that mean for you look if we really have to kind of get at high level what cnap is we need to kind of go a little bit back in the history and around 2000 between 2014 and 2016 when the casb industry cloud access security broker industry was kind of at a maturity curve and we saw introduction of cspms cloud security mm-hmm. posture management so cspm products their focus has been to detect the level of posture from the point of view of compliance misconfigurations and best practices how much of those you have kind of implemented while developing and while operating your cloud environments it it's more of a ciso focused product and the outcome is pretty much around compliance detection is part of it but compliance is there and then we saw around 2015 16 we saw companies like twistlock introduce one of the first cwpps cloud workload protection platforms whose primary responsibility is to protect your workloads from network based attacks as well as host based protection equivalent in the container world now yeah is if i have to give you a very short definition is kind of a combination of cspm cwpp and everything that you would have to do to secure your cloud from code devsecops and from deployment point of view when you when you put these three aspects together of course there's a lot more to talk about primary purpose is to source findings from these different cloud security paradigms create a result which determines a holistic risk that you can kind of possess in a cloud environment it's like let's say you have a, a very simple web application deployed on a cloud environment which is running on an say AWS it's running on EC2 instance it's part of a subnet it has a database which is running on another subnet and yep. then a load balancer which is basically forwarding the traffic to this EC2 instance using target groups there are some security groups being used there are some IAM roles being used product that can tell you that listen you have deployed a web application which has a SSRF vulnerability running on this EC2 instance since it is exposed to internet because of the routing that exists between elb and this application that is being hosted and because of overly permissive iam role that you have on this ec2 instance and another misconfiguration that you have on it attacker if it takes over this ec2 instance can directly also dump the database if there's a product which can tell you all this this entire story by now cspm would have only told you that your ec2 instances have got misconfigurations that's about it no context likewise A CWPP product would have told you you have vulnerabilities on this EC2 instance, or if there was a container involved, it would have told you the vulnerability. But when you have to be able to stitch these different results together with the story of a attack path or a breach path, that's the primary purpose of. But of course, from the business perspective, it's being designed as a space. It's designed to create this single glass of pain kind of uh, visualizations as well. for CISOs as well as for CTO organizations and there's a lot more detail into it but that's kind of up 100,000 feet high gist of what CNAP is 
at its purposes. Yep. It kind of makes sense as well. But it also, as you kind of mentioned from an evolution perspective, it's like, oh yeah, of course, that, that should have been like the obvious thing for it to happen. But it sounds like for people who may not be from... I guess that space of beginning of the cloud world to see uh, the, the transition of CSPM, CWPP. And now there's another one, CNAP, and you're like, oh my God, like what is the CNAP thing that I have to get used to now? So from that perspective, it may kind of make sense what people are trying to do. You mentioned end-to-end, -end, and you mentioned DevSecOps in there as well. And you mentioned the fact that oh, the, these previous components used to have, how do I put this, uh, different components of the big picture. They don't tell you the entire thing. They're just saying, hey, you have a problem here, you have a problem there. It, it's really interesting, man. Do make, that makes me think that, do I need a CNAP today though? Like, like I have a CSPM already. I have a CWPP as well. Does that mean I should go look for a CNAP? Well, Frankly speaking, the industry, if you even see the analyst world, Gartner has barely just started speaking about CNAP. And one fact remains that is a maturity curve. So you would first want to make sure that now you could go for a CNAP vendor, anyone who offers CNAP, but you may choose to start from implementing the CSPM capabilities first, because that's kind of the low hanging fruit. You may want to enable the CWPP next from the same platform. And then you may want to also enable the DevSecOps piece to reduce the cost of doing security, also to reduce the mean time to remediations, and then eventually achieve the final goal of CNAP. Now, what CNAP is not is you bring in CNAP, you press a button, and you start seeing the breach paths or the attack paths. That's not realistic, at least in 2021. Of course, in the next few years of time, the technology might mature to a level where data collection becomes kind of so mature that all the data which is required for CNAP to work might be easy to collect and acquire on day zero, but that's not the case today. You need to be able to acquire a lot of data to be able to get to the analysis piece, which is the core of CNAP. Otherwise, you're good with just CSPM and CWPP for that matter. Interesting. I, I get where you're coming from. And I also understand the fact that maybe not the first step to kind of, kind of click deploy and suddenly you have an attack pass everywhere from end to end. There's a lot more moving parts to it. Maybe it's a good one to kind of take a step back and go, what's this cloud native security that people talk about? Because I, I feel like what we've spoken about is an example of is your, I guess the, everyone's talking about it, but there's mm -hmm. another conversation that a lot of people are having out about Kubernetes, Terraform, like, hey, I want to go multi-cloud, cloud native. So maybe something along the lines of cloud native security. What is cloud native according to you? And what does cloud native security mean for you? The definition of cloud native for a lot of people have evolved. There was a big part of the community who believed, I guess, up until recently that cloud native strictly means running your applications on workloads, which you don't have to manage the infrastructure for. And it's a responsibility of the cloud provider, the CSP, to manage the infrastructure. And in some shape or form, people started associating cloud native strictly to container-based or serverless-based kind of architectures. However, recently, I've kind of spoken to a lot of different CTOs and CCOs, and I'm understanding that that definition has evolved. And now, one of the latest definitions that I have come across, and mind you, these are all controversial definitions, derive the meaning of cloud native from CNCF. Now, CNCF does everything which is pretty much around Kubernetes. A lot of other you know, projects that they have, it's pretty much around that kind of architecture. So Kubernetes is, in my opinion, is not just Kubernetes, which is cloud native. And my opinion is that now anything and everything that 
allows you to build architectures purely on cloud-based environments is cloud native using cloud server. So for example, even EC2 instances, I mean, I know what I'm going to say is a little controversial. For a long time, I have believed myself that cloud native strictly relates to container serverless based architectures because mm -hmm. you have to know what's happening behind the scene and you don't have to, you just package everything in containers and container becomes actually a integral component of application layer, despite of having elements of infrastructure in it. That's why yeah. native. But my understanding today is that every service that is available on cloud environments, if you're using those services to build your architecture, that's a cloud native architecture. The moment you have a hybrid uh, approach where you have some portions of your architecture running on-prem, that's where the kind of Duran line, if I can call it, comes. Mm -hmm. Because between the between the cloud and the on-premise, and that's where your cloud native definitions start to break up. Otherwise, for me, if you are running a web application on an EC2 instance, that is a cloud native uh, architecture in my personal opinion. Interesting. And I think we have got just left a comment as well. Definitely, I think technology has changed over time and cloud native adoption is growing over time. So CNAV is definitely needed. Yeah, so I think that's based on the previous comment that you mentioned about whether we actually need it or not. But uh, thanks for sharing that, Sangam. So we've kind of explored cloud native definition to what you said, if it's hosted in EC2 in the AWS, Azure or wherever, whichever cloud environment. And I agree with you in the definition having its own variations among different people. Like a lot of people, when you say cloud native, they automatically think it's talking about containers or Kubernetes or like one of those kinds just defined by CNCF, yeah. even though all these providers are already part of it. And then there is another definition where people talk about if you use services from your cloud service provider, that's also cloud native. Like, yeah. well, which one is it? It's like, but somehow anyway, everyone has their opinion on this, but what are some of the traits or I guess, for people to kind of think about from a security perspective, like what are some of the things that define these days cloud native? Because like how we kind of went in the history with CASB, CSPM, is there a version to that as well? Like how has how that evolved? So CASB started around 2010, 11. A couple of vendors had kind of introduced the, the technology. CASB mostly focused on proxy-based technology to protect your data and its confidentiality, the data that would have left your secure trust boundary and would have gone into the cloud environments. And it was primarily designed also to solve the problem of shadow IT. In any given organization, if you have hundreds of employees, everybody has their own favorite cloud service that they want to use, how secure is how secure those services are and which services should be allowed for employees. So that's kind of a shadow IT problem. CASB was designed for that mostly. And of course it has evolved. CASB itself has evolved has now got a lot of uh, different capabilities. It's phenomenal to see CASB's growth. Uh, I mean, we can see Zscaler, how you know Zscaler has come along and various different other vendors in that space. Cloud native, the hope was, and see around 2014, 15, when the container orchestration wars, when they began, right? Four different players, we had Docker Swarm, on one corner and your show has a feel to it. You should one day do something around cloud native wars, the container orchestration wars. That's where all the cloud native kind of thing emerged or the evolution emerged from there on. So you had Docker Swarm on one side, you had Kubernetes on one side, and of course you had you know two other players. One was Cloud Foundry, which is now a different thing altogether. A couple of other vendors were also trying to attempt orchestration. When the container orchestration wars were over and officially kind of Kubernetes won the war, it, it was being hoped or it was thought that now Kubernetes is going to be the new operating system for the cloud. And everything that runs on top of it is something which is going to provide 
immediate value to the application technology world. However, and, and that is what was driving people to believe that cloud native now means anything and everything that you are running on top of Kubernetes, and you don't even get to know as a consumer that what kind of Kubernetes is actually running behind the scene. So that's where you saw the emergence of EKS, GKE kind of existed, but EKS, AKS, GK, and now you have D2IQ and many other platforms. So they like to tout themselves as cloud native, but that hasn't really happened. Like all workloads are not on Kubernetes. All workloads are not on containers as much as I would want them to be. But that's yep. not the ground reality. And so the CSP is putting together another narrative into the industry that, okay, listen, what is the difference between cloud native and what we offer as services for bringing up your infrastructure? Like in case of EC2 instances or virtual instances for Azure or other instances in GCP, nobody gets to know what they are running behind the scene, what hypervisors are. We don't even have to know that. We don't even care. Maybe everything is so hyper virtualized that maybe we are in the seventh dimension of the virtualization. Maybe there's a virtual machine and inside that there's another virtual machine inside the, the EC2. Maybe it's the sixth layer of the virtualization. Who knows? We don't even yeah. know. So CSP started talking that, okay, we need to break through this narrative because we don't want confusion to happen that it's not a bad or good thing to be or be not to be cloud native. Suddenly that became a status symbol kind of thing. Oh, we are hundred percent cloud native. Yeah. What does it mean. And that's when people started defining some terms like immutable infrastructure. So one of the traits of cloud native infrastructure is it has to be designed with immutability and immutable right. has two components to it. One is rip and replace strategy. That means no. nothing is going to get changed in the production or in operations, but you will replace it. Right. And with that came the need for hyper automation. So how can you do rip and replace if you cannot programmatically do that? And if you can programmatically do that, that means there's an opportunity for you to code it or to script it. And that's yep. where the emergence of IAC happened. Of course, Terraforms and other technologies existed after 2014, but it was 2016 onwards when we saw tremendous growth around Terraform kind of technologies. That's what kind of came to the rescue for the industry. So anything that you can do with Terraform, Today in the cloud, now it is considered that is what is cloud native, basically, as an example. Or you can do it with right. ARM, Polomi. There are other IAC technologies. I just want to, I don't want to name one vendor here. But it, can you spin virtual instances using Terraform? Absolutely. Can yep. you create network layers using uh, Terraform? Absolutely. Now, can you also spin Kubernetes using Hemcharts? Yes, you can. So that's now for as long as you can achieve immutability and your hyper automation that is what is defining cloud native now what i'm predicting already i mean i've been talking to a few people that as soon as these two capabilities are brought into the on premise world as well because even that world is going to undergo a change where everything will be api driven and then you can have isc technologies supporting immutability and hyper automation even for on premise environments so then what are you going to call that? Uh, cloud native on-premise? So these are some of the nuances. So I guess cloud native now is being understood as if you are adopting highly programming and immutable based architecture where your strategy is rip and replace, you do not have to worry about various other operational overheads. That is the architecture which is 
cloud native. Interesting. We've got an interesting definition from Sangam as well. Sangam's definition is my definition cloud native is about culture, not containers. There's another version there, but sorry, do you have a comment on that? Well, I think the, the programmatic approach and the immutability as, as much as being strategy, it is also the cultural shift. I mean, the IT ops who were never used to write code for yep. doing operations now have to shift bring the shift into the culture. And now the one thing that Sangam is raising is, is absolutely true, is that cloud engineering is more and more becoming like software engineering because you're writing a lot of software to maintain and manage your cloud. And that's a big cultural change. There's a cultural shift element as well. Yeah, no, and thanks for that comment as well. It's, it's really interesting that you mentioned the cultural shift, both you and Sangam as well, because a lot of conversation initially was talking also about, hey, security folks should learn how to code, but people were, oh, what does that really mean? And then then came the whole policy and code as, as code as well. So keeping that whole CNAP thing in mind with cloud native application protection platform, or as they want to call it. So the we spoke about the end-to-end -end piece. We spoke about the pieces where, oh, okay, so I'm starting from the left. And mm -hmm. we've kind of, I love how the conversation has gone so far because we've kind of touched on a few things. And now we kind of realized, okay, this is what cloud native is. So in my mind, CNAP is more suited for people who are already doing IAC or infrastructure as code using Terraform, Pulumi, or whatever one of those languages, provision infrastructure of any kind. And as that kind of provisions, then you kind of reach the configuration stage. So it sounds like an end-to-end, -end, like if, if I were to take a step back and go, it's like a big picture view of what a, a newly defined cloud native application should look like from, from a protection perspective. Absolutely. And this is, again, part of the evolution. So as the realization has kind of, you know, been observed and you know achieved by the industry that, look, if cloud native strategies are being used for provisioning applications, I mean, ultimately you do everything, you build the infrastructure to host your revenue generating applications. Those which generate the app, applications are the one which generate your revenue. So yeah. if the applications are being provisioned, packaged, deployed more and more using cloud native strategies, as I said, two traits, programmatic way of provisioning, immutability, that means now the security also gets an opportunity to start detecting problems even before the environments are built because a lot of the definitions of your environment or the cloud infrastructure are defined within the code that you're writing, whether it is Terraform, Cloud Formation Templates, Azure Resource Manager Templates, or many other type of ISCs, including Hemchart, Customized, YAMLs, things like those. So if those are intelligently analyzed, 80% of the cyber hygiene and security posture related issues can be detected from them. Now, if you detect your security issues at the time when this code is being written or when the code is being passed through the pipeline, you are doing tremendous cost savings in terms of detection cost for security point of view. And you get an opportunity to do early remediation, which is a huge deal in the cloud world. The applications are running faster than anybody else in terms of development velocity. Every day we get 10 different, we don't even get to know how many new versions of Netflix gets released on daily basis. So it's fast. That means you have to have an opportunity to detect problems at a low cost because you cannot be affording to detect them, all of them in the runtime. You need runtime security like an insurance, but you have to be able to detect things early so that you can reduce mean time to remediation because it's not the detection which is a biggest problem of industries. If you notice any kind of breaches that have happened today when it comes to production environment-based patching, when you do the same thing in the development environment, you reduce 
mean time to remediation. And that's what is going to protect you from breaches. Of course, detection still has to work. Without detection, you cannot patch or you cannot remediate. But yep. PR has to be reduced. And that's one advantage that you get. As CNAP defines clearly that you have to be able to do your cloud security from left, and then you have to go all the way till the right, and you have to achieve different goals of different stages. Like you have to be able to do early detection, reduce mean time to remediation from the left. On the runtime, continuously defend and detect any leftovers. Like you cannot underestimate runtime security. You have to do it. Yep. So that's that's kind of the whole objective of CNAP. That's so much to unpack there as well. It's exactly as you mentioned, mean time detection is always easy because there's so many tools for it. Remediation is the harder part. That I mean, that's where the whole auto remediation came in. Hey, don't worry. How do you detect and get to it? Let me auto remediate for you that as well. That's the whole CSP. That was quite interesting at that point as well. I think we're definitely finding that as a team where we have the right tool sets in the, I guess, arsenal for lack of a better word, but getting to the problem, how do we solve the problem is probably the harder piece. So thinking, taking that a step further then, if, I, if I'm a CISO or if I'm like a security leader who's now realized that, oh, I've got cloud native infrastructure running or my applications are cloud native and I need to figure this out. I heard this inspiring history from home and I now, now I feel like I need to do something about this. What's a good place to start thinking about security for cloud native? It doesn't have to be a complex scenario. In a, in a very simple use case, someone's starting today, trying to get their head around cloud native or securing cloud native applications. What should they be looking at? Well, as much as I want to test and talk about security, we can discuss about a lot of security controls that can be potentially applied in such kind of environment. But the fact remains, my mentor told me like 15 years ago when I was part of initiatives around ITGRC. So before CASB, the industry was doing ITGRC, just ITGRC everywhere. So at that time, my mentor, who's based out of Melbourne, actually, he had a favorite line I used to speak a lot. It's all about visibility. Yeah. So, well, the first thing that CISO will have to do is figure out whether CISO has visibility into all potential critical business critical assets or not. So it has nothing got to do with security to begin with. The first step is about asset visibility, asset classification, because if you don't have visibility, you can secure anyways. So you need to first figure that thing out. And it's unfortunate that figuring that thing out in 2021 is a challenge. Uh, especially when you talk about so-called quote-unquote cloud native world. How do you figure out, first of all, right, that let's talk about a non-containerized environment. How do you figure out how many workloads today, those workloads that are running, they use how many other different kind of resources? Because cloud has got really a lot of different services and each service can spin a resource. You need to have eye upon them. You need to then figure out what is the data classification or criticality of those assets, how many of them are business critical from revenue point of view. And then you start designing your security controls based on the objectives that you want to achieve. You may have yep. compliance objectives, then you have nowhere to go. You have to do those controls, which they are asking you to do. It doesn't matter if the compliance controls are securing you or not. See, hackers don't care whether you have a compliance certification. <laughs> so first you need to figure out like that. And and by the time you figure out all of this, 18 months are, and your shelf life of a CISO is not more than 18 months. And then you have to come back and think, oh, what I have to secure as well. So now serious point about that is that, well, if you are an organization which is decently mature and all the fun foundation and fundamentals are at least there, like in terms of asset visibility, asset classifications, and you have basic fundamentals in place, then definitely you must start first by 
conducting extensive threat assessments, but in terms of threat models first, understand what are the specific type of threats that your type of organization that you're working for. And you can correlate industry metrics there and many other kind of aspects like technology stacks. What are the actual threats that then start thinking about how much of uh, targeted attacks versus scavenger type of attacks you could face because of the technologies that you might be using. You may kind of figure out that what you're using WordPress. And if you're using WordPress in your tech stack, then of course those adversaries, which are called as opportunistic attackers, who are not necessarily after, who are after anybody on internet with common set of tools, the hacking tools that they're using, then you definitely are in the line of sight for them too, if they get to know your IP addresses and other things. So you have to worry about protecting against those kind of adversaries. And then if you belong to say critical infrastructure, you belong to some kind of industry, then you also need to put in effort to analyze your threat landscape in terms of potential adversaries that can come after you. There could be nation states, there could be other adversary groups. So one of the methods that has become very popular is called as diamond model, where you basically use your organization's text versus adversary capability information that is available from a lot of different you know, frameworks. MITRE has it, attack framework also gives you that. And then you map and see that the tech stack that you have versus the adversary groups that are out there whose information is available, who is that adversary group whose favorite attack technique maps to your technology stack? So those are the kind of attacks that are potentially going to come after you. When you design your security control, this is not for compliance. Compliance, yeah. you have to do 32 character passwords. There's no guarantee they're going to protect you, but you have to do that. So yeah. I'm not talking about that, but security, yes. Then you start designing your controls accordingly. What I need to be able to prioritize, I need to be able to see enriched data. Like you may decide that what one of the controls I want to have this particular region of the world. We don't have any customers. We don't have anything to do with that region. I'm going to block the hell out of it. I'm not going to take that risk. And then you start kind of understanding your threat landscape more and more design your controls to bring your residual risk towards those threats lower as possible. When I was very young, I thought watching so many different Hollywood movies, I always thought what there are these silver bullets. A hacker sits behind the laptop. And so the defender could sit behind the laptop and you can protect, right? Fact of the matter is cybersecurity is a journey. It's not destination. Things are constantly evolving. You need to make it as much more difficult as much you can for the attackers and adversaries to cause harm. So you need to be able to defeat these adversaries in their mission, even if you're not able to protect. But if you can make sure that if the hacker hacks in, the hacker is not able to succeed in the mission, you would still come out as a winner. So if you have yeah. that tactical, you know, and strategic mentality as a CISO, you'll be able to then protect well, but definitely you need to understand who are your adversaries. You have to understand that better in order to then design your controls in a more better way. It's a great answer because I forgot for a second, you're, you're a fellow CISO as well. So you definitely would require a deep understanding of this. I think another question that I get asked when I talk about cloud native security by a lot of CISOs that we kind of have, or at least have li as listeners or even security leaders for that matter is that, hey, we have a seam, so we technically we don't have to worry about like whatever, throw at anything at me, I can make sure to your point, get visibility of any threats that may be coming across there. Like obviously CNAP sounds like a, it's more, more of a taking a step back in the big picture thing. You're going all the way from the IAC infrastructure is written as code all the way to the runtime piece, but we can generally clarify clarified so the runtime piece in a cnap category is that done by the cspm or is cnap itself has the capability 
So, I mean, and that's what goes into a seam. Like, or is there a point of talking about seam in this context at all, I guess? No, very interesting question. Look, from the seam point of view, I partly agree the statement that you made of what some of your fellows have kind of spoken and partly disagree because, see, in cybersecurity world also, I mean, look, there has been a saying for so long, I'm secure because I have a firewall or for that secure because I have an antivirus. So seam, of course, is a great technology. Oxide brought it into the commercial world. Maybe there were, you know, a few open source projects before that. So Seam goes much beyond 2001. Seam has yep. since 1999, 2000. So, and it's a very, very efficient tool. You can achieve a lot out of it. Absolutely, you can achieve a lot out of it. Now, it totally depends how skillful that team is, which is using Seam. How much skills are expected from your internal SecOps teams or internal security operations team, which is able to enrich, detect, do threat hunting. If you have that much skillful team, which can do all of this, you can then do it using a lot of open source technology as well. You don't really need commercial technology to be able to do that. So yes, I agree with the fact that seams have come a long way and they have a lot of capabilities. They can do a lot, but with seams, a lot more skill to be able to fetch the greatness out of it. And that's where I guess some of the problems are. So seams are not going anywhere. Seams are here to stay. Yeah. To your second part of the question, what about CNAP? Is it going to be disrupting some elements of seam? So the answer is sort of yes, but strictly I believe for cloud world, look, seam is not just cloud. It is a lot more about on-premise as well. A lot yes. of cloud workloads as well. It can ingest a great deal of data from sources, which CNAP is right now not designed or is not being spoken about from the CNAPSA strategy point of view. So yep. it's purely focusing on, however, there is going to be certain elements that is going to overlap between CNAP and SIM from the cloud point of view. At this time, it's, it's not, I would say the CNAP has to mature for us to be able to see that, is it going to totally replace SIM in the cloud world? But a lot of elements are going to overlap. And I believe for cloud native environments at some point in time, CNAPs are going to include a great deal of features of what SIMs carry today for non-cloud world. That is going to be interesting. So SIM is going to still continue to play a part in this somewhere, but maybe not because it, moving forward, if you're living in a hybrid world where we have cloud, on-prem, IoT, all these other living on edge, 5G, like all that, yeah. that's not cloud. That's a lot more there than just the cloud for any CISO to be dealing with. So um, 100% agree with you on that one as well. I think so from a visibility perspective, I guess, so what should technically, like, because you're a CISO as well. So what's from a visibility perspective that you mentioned earlier, that hey, that's probably the first step that you're trying to grab onto. What kind of elements are you looking for from a security perspective for cloud native? Because I guess you mentioned the fact that having visibility of asset, asset inventory. Now, someone define what that is. Are yeah. there like, I don't know, I think the right, the right word probably is like, if I'm, I've already got like a 10 Kubernetes cluster kind of environment, it's a massive application and I've done, I've, hey, go deal with this. Are there a certain level of maturity that you see in the way people do cloud native security, people who understand it? and have visibility like what's that what does that look like well yeah one aspect uh, definitely which is superior in pure kubernetes based architectures is it is far more i would say consistent in terms of its workload management and so therefore it is far more i would say straightforward there's still a lot of effort needed but 
the complexity levels, I would say, are not up to in a way where you have to deal with 20 different types of things versus dealing one type of thing. So in the world of Kubernetes, it is far more straightforward to gain visibility into the workloads. So as you said, you have 10 clusters. Each cluster has its own ETC database. You go ahead and do whatever you want to do. You can write your own scripts or you can use vendors, you can use products, which can just fetch all information from ETCD. Everything is defined as a kind in Kubernetes. Yeah. You get to see all your namespaces. You get to see all your pods. You get to see all your containers running within each pod. And then you can see a lot of all the services running around them as well. You can see ingress, you can a lot of different type of kinds which are running. So it's one single place where you can fetch all this information. Of course, you still have to do the dissecting work. You have to bring these assets in and you have to define them. Each asset type has to be defined and you have to classify things like this. But you can achieve a lot of this using infrastructure automation as well. When you are spinning assets, you can kind of, you know, push a policy. You can, you can have your, you know, infrastructure teams follow some policies that what do proper tagging. If you are spinning applications in this namespace, tag them using these values. And then you can use those to kind of define your business criticality as well. So in Kubernetes world, it is, I would say it's still straightforward. Once you have gained that visibility, how many clusters you have, how many namespaces you have, how many pods you have, start off first by detecting your, say, CI's benchmark for all of them. See how much of how much of compliance is there from CI's point of view. See what controls you may really want to be enabled if they are not enabled from configuration's point of view. Keep a tight grip on the exposure piece. Expose as little as what you can and don't expose too many uh, services or too many. And from there on, start building your security controls on top of it. So you identify that, okay, what for this particular cluster, I need to be able to do traffic inspection. I need to be able to do vulnerability detection. I need to be able to scan the container images which are living in the registry. Or there could be some cluster which maybe has a, a crown jewel service running or application running, and you may want to use admission controller there to ensure that certain policies never breached. So as a CISO, you want to make sure what I do not ever want overly permissive RBAC on this namespace here, because this is going to be a conduit to uh, a volume or a database. And I just don't want any extra permissions to be going on this. So you can create such kind of policies, push them into admission control, and you can block them. So anybody attempting to do that will not be able to do it, but that's like last mile enforcement. So yeah. these controls then are possible to design once you have gained visibility. In a non-Kubernetes world, on the other side, things are a little tricky because each service provider, each CSP has its own way of defining resources. Like today, around 250 different type of resources are possible on AWS. Similar number are possible on Azure. And then you have a little bit, 10, 20% up and down in GCP. And each yeah. of the resources, like for example, in AWS, a security group is a resource. It's not a workload. It's a, it is yeah. mined differently. What are the nuances of that? So in the CSP world, that's where you need more help coming in from commercial products who have spent a lot of time understanding these different asset types, these resources, and what are their security implications? What are their security misconfigurations or what are the connections or the relationships 
that these resources possess, which can trigger attacks. That's where the CSPMs of the world are investing a lot of time for consumers to kind of not become entangled in all of this. It's really interesting. And I love that the the way you defined it as to the two different kinds of work that would probably define what kind of approach you need to take from a visibility and security perspective. For people who may be listening in from like the perspective, you mentioned DevSecOps and shifting to the left. There's always this confusion that a lot of people have that, hey, it sounds like a security tool, but a security tool that needs help from DevOps or developers. So should they be looking after this or should we be looking after this? Who who looks up, in your opinion, who looks after CNAP usually? Is that like just as the security team or the DevOps team or the devs themselves who's looking after this, or at least the stuff that's being alerted. Well, see, you rightly said, developers still have nothing got to do with security application. Although the cultural shift is happening, we are seeing a lot more organizations are making a mandate for developers to start getting trained on fundamentals of security and start doing secure coding practices, things like those. Some elements of security are coming in, but still by and large, developers unfortunately hate security. Or for that matter, they might they, they hate anything else, which in their way of uh, releasing the, the software quickly and in a timely fashion. So from, from that cultural aspect, the way CNAP and similar kind of products, they work is that their primary goal is to embed security into existing developer workflows from detection point of view, as well as in some cases from remediation point of view, but in such a way that fusion or that instrumentation has to happen in such a way in a manner where the developers don't even get to know that there is some security tool working behind the scene. The moment you ask developers what we need to introduce this particular security tool in your workflow, but from today on, one of the processes that you are following is not going to be same it is changing they're not going to adopt it they will only adopt things when things are working seamlessly behind the scene so as an example let's say i'm a developer i'm writing a bunch of code and i've written the code now i want to check that code into say bitbucket or github right now as a developer don't ask me to fire another process to scan that code you want to do the scanning you do it i shouldn't even get to know it and if something goes wrong in your scanning process just send me a pull request or i will look into it but don't tell me to fire anything else disrupt my workflow so therefore products like cnap or the devsecops based products have to ensure that they're introducing security validation gateways and other kind of detection processes into existing developer workflows and do not introduce a new workflow. So embed yourself with a source code repository based kind of integration in such a way the developer doesn't even get to know it or right, or with something which is called as pull request interception, pull request review kind of thing. Yeah. That is when you will see that adoption is happening. Otherwise adoption will not happen. But the results, as you asked, who's going to view the results? So still the operation responsibility for security point of view is with C. The mm. remedy responsibility has shifted to left with engineering. CISOs keep the visibility from security operations point of view, but they use shift left. CISOs are using shift left for policy enforcement and for early detection and reduction of cost of security. So what they want to decide is CISOs wants to decide that these are 10 things that I do not want developers ever to do. Like for example, in case of AWS, again, in EC2, there's a configuration called as instance metadata service, which has yep. been reason behind a lot of breaches. So as a CISO, I do not want any developer to ever write a Terraform code with an EC2 instance that is enabling that. So I want to be able to enforce that 
But I want to do that in such a way that developers should not get interrupted in their code development process. So I would want to then use a product or a tool which goes and integrates with source code management tool in such a way that developer writes the code, checks the code in, and now developer just gets the code back saying that, sorry, I cannot accept this because there's a security problem in that. That is still okay with them because the developer is dealing only with source code management tool. If you will, as a developer, before you check the code in into GitHub, upload this code onto this new product UI, see what the results are. They're going to say what? They're going to use a term which is used commonly in Australia. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And as well, because it's kind of where a lot of the initial lack of maturity that people talk about with CSPM as well, it, it was almost like their work is done by engineering, but there was no visibility of what was being found for engineering. But the visibility piece was always, hey, go to this website to see what the result is. Or I think even I, now that I think about it after this conversation, even the Slack notification truly, that's probably not even Teams notification or whatever. That's not truly native for them as well. They still have to like go away from what they were doing onto this another application. Because chat, Slack is usually, or Slack or Teams usually for just conversations. It's not about, hey, yeah. or maybe someone's raised an issue, trying to collaborate together, like... It's not for finding bugs for your for your code that you've written down. So I, I love what you've described over there. Time as well. Sorry, go on. I live by just three tools. IDE, SCM, source code management tool, and the pipeline. For as long yep. as you are playing within these three tools, they'll be... Yeah, yeah. That's, and as long as feedback comes there itself, instead of on this another platform, I, I think you, you'll probably be having a very security first culture at that point as well. I guess maybe that's another definition of having a security first culture to be able to integrate where your, I guess your colleagues are for lack of a better word. I just want to make sure, because I'm just conscious of our time as well and your time as well. So the, I think I've covered all the questions over there, but I've got towards the end, I've got three questions, which are just like general questions just to, for people to get to know you a bit. And there are too many just, so the first one being, what do you spend most time on when you're not working on cloud, cloud native or technology? Well, I'm, a ferocious reader and I'm spending these days I spend a lot of time reading different types of encyclopedias for my daughter trying to make sure that she learns a few things yeah oh cool well maybe you should it's good I wish I, I'm like I'm, I'm an envious ferocious reader and since that I wish I could read as much as other people but I don't enough so the, the next question I have is what is something that you're proud of but is not on your social media something uh -huh. that you're proud of but is not on your social media well I represented Australia in Cyber Olympics in 2012. And wow. I don't think so that's there anywhere on the social media. Wow. So, Wait, is that even a thing? I didn't, re I didn't even realize it was a cybersecurity Olympics. Yeah, it's an EC Council event. They kind of do these regional hacking competitions. So it was in Australia at that time. So I represented Australia, came to Miami in US. Wow. There you go. Well, well, I'm glad Australia was represented by someone as talented as you, man. That's pretty awesome. Final question. What is your favorite cuisine or restaurant that you can share? Well, my favorite cuisines have been mostly Indian, but off late, thanks to my wife, she's introduced me to different kinds of cuisines. So it's now fettuccine, what's kind of my favorite. And uh, well, in Chicago, there are a lot of different kind of restaurants, but there's a chain here next to my state. So we live in Illinois, next to my state is Iowa. We need, yeah. I just 
love them for the fettuccine. Interesting. Thanks for sharing that. By the way, for people who may have, and that's pretty much the end of the fun question as well, but for people who may want to reach out to you for further clarification or reach out for you in general, if you can tell us where people can find you and just for a little bit of accurate as well. Yeah. Well, people can reach me on my Twitter handle, Umaitrika, which is my daughter's name. And by the way, so people can find you there. Well, I made sure that at least I'm giving her one asset when she grows up, which is a digital asset. So yeah, yeah. like maybe want to make make it make it an NFT one day as well. Yeah, and otherwise I could be reached on LinkedIn too, mostly on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Um, unfortunately, not on Instagram or on Facebook. So and regarding Acurex, I mean, yeah. So we started. We were a shift left CSPM product when we began, but we kind of developed a lot of uh, capability around CSPM and runtime CSPM as well. And uh, we recently became part of Tenable. One of my dream, I would say companies, I started my career actually coding on Ness's platform uh, back in 2007. So it's funny that I landed with Tenable. So wow, I'll definitely leave all the show notes. I like at least links in the show notes as well, but thank you so much for coming in. I, I really appreciate the time you spent with us and uh, the knowledge you've shared as well. I'm sure everyone else did as well. So I do really appreciate this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No problem. And uh, for everyone else watching in, I will see you all next week with another episode of our Trends for Cloud Security, uh, which is month of October. So I'll see you all next weekend. Have a safe one. And I'll talk to you soon. Peace. Thank you for listening to that episode of Cloud Security Podcast. If you found some new information from that episode, we would appreciate if you share it with others. Share it with us as well if you have any good feedback or good learnings from the episode. We are on all your favorite podcast platforms. If you don't find us there, you can always go on our website, www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv to listen to the latest episode. We appreciate your support in helping us grow. It helps us bring more guests. It helps us support the channel. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and talk to you on the next episode.